If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Edward actually, uh, clearly, uh, at least in my view, was using uh, tactics and weapons which had never been seen on a battlefield before. That was Richard Barber in conversation with Matt Elton about his new biography of Edward III. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. My name is Rob Attar and I'm the editor of BBC History magazine which is the UK's best-selling history magazine. You can find it in all good newsagents and on subscription. See historyextra.com forward slash subscribe hyphen today for our latest subscription deals. And we also have digital editions available for the iPad, for the Kindle, for the Kindle Fire, for Google Play and Zinio. For details of all of these and to purchase your copies, head to historyextra.com forward slash digital. Edward III is often regarded as one of England's greatest monarchs, 
both due to his personality and his military successes. The 14th century king is the subject of a new book by historian Richard Barber. Richard spoke to our reviews editor, Matt Elton, about the importance of the men around Edward III and the reasons that he struggled later in his reign. What first prompted you to write this book? What actually happened was that I'd done a piece on the Order of the Garter for the Dictionary of National Biography. And um, I met um, the editor at a for the DNB medieval section at a party in London uh, for some history award. And um, I said to him, really, I didn't feel that I'd really done the subject justice. Uh, And um, we talked for a little about it. And then I thought, well, I think this is actually a book and I would like to research it properly. And I put the idea to my editor at Penguin who said, uh, yeah, that was fine. so it was actually out of something I'd done already, really. Okay. Uh, and just feeling that I wasn't happy about the way other writers had treated the Order of the Garter. Mm. And then that led back to the Battle of Cressy. So how much do we know about Edward's early life? His very early life, really very little indeed. But, of course, his career begins at what we would think is an amazingly early age, because when... Um, Queen Isabella, Isabella fell out with Edward II and uh, left for France. Um, he was only 15. So the actual period when Isabella invaded England and effectively deposed Edward II, uh, he was 16, 17. So uh, that that today we'd call early life, mm. but in the Middle Ages wasn't necessarily so. No, no. But before that, we know very, very little about it at all. Okay. Um, and then obviously moving forward um, into him taking the throne, what issues did he face um, at that point? Really, the whole thing was in the hands of Isabella and Roger Mortimer, uh, who was associated with her in the invasion and then probably became her lover. And um, it was really his relationship with them that was the problem because mm. they were actually running the country. In a sense, he didn't come to the throne until after the coup of 1330 when uh, he captured and imprisoned Mortimer and took the reins himself. Mm. And really, um, it was rebuilding trust in the monarchy, I suppose, because Edward II had made such a cock-up of things that um, uh, it was very much questionable as to how he would manage. Mm. Uh, Certainly Edward II's favourites were a major issue and uh, whether he was going to go down that route. So it was really more to do with, it wasn't issues that he had to face, but really more with rebuilding confidence in the uh, in the monarchy. Sure. I mean, to what extent do we get a sense of his personality at this early stage? Or is... uh, you begin to get uh, a sense of his personality. And really what's more interesting in a way was um, the group of people around him and the way he interacted with them. And that's a theme throughout the book. And what emerges fairly rapidly is that Edward's great strength um, 
not necessarily as a king, but just generally, uh, was that he didn't interact with people in the way that Edward II and Richard II did, which was, I am the king. Mm. Um, well, Richard used to make his his lords sort of kneel in his presence mm. for yeah. hours on a time, at a time, the yeah. story goes. Whereas Edward was very much one of a group. Mm. Um, all right, uh, whatever it is, primus inter pares, but he was first among equals, mm, okay. uh, certainly at this stage in his reign. So, uh, I guess moving on to his military experiences, to what extent did those earlier experiences shape the course of his reign? Well, I think they shaped uh, his experience. I mean, obviously, the invasion of 1326-7 um, you know, put him put him on the throne much earlier than he would have been otherwise. Uh, and the second stage really is the experiences in Scotland, uh, where first of all there was a stalemate, and he was very frustrated on his first campaign. Uh, and then uh, the um, victory at Halidon Hill, which uh, showed a way forward using archers. Uh, they had been used before, but uh, not by commanders who knew what to do with them. Okay. And in fact, it's interesting that Henry of Beaumont, who was his uh, guardian and tutor in those years, uh, was actually the, one of the first people to fight a battle in the classic mm. um, manner, which was to take a defensive position position your archers in such a way that you covered the enemy approaching you uh, and um, uh, you know, they kept falling into the trap. <laughs> <laughs> so talking I suppose about his personality and about those military experiences do we get a sense of him being stronger as a strategist or as a, a fighter or is he both of those things? Um, he is actually quite an all-rounder in that he is uh, um, Clearly a thinker, uh, at one end, he's a thinker who uh, is well advised and takes advice. I think that's possibly one of the key things about Edward, that mm -hmm. he takes advice, whether it's about the reform of the law, whether it's about what to do next in the middle of a battle. He doesn't just sort of say, I know what to do. Yeah. Uh, he doesn't, he, he sets the agenda, but then lets other people uh, work on it too mm. and uh, take takes advice mm. it's only in relation to parliament that he sometimes uh, yes. refuses to take advice because yeah. uh, it, parliament is not an organised body and it's quite difficult to deal with mm. um, but his great strength really is this business of acting together with people mm. rather than um, going off in his own trail one thing that is interesting is the idea that he wasn't in any way well, I don't know, that he wasn't fighting for his country so much as fighting for his own um, position. That's, a, that's an interesting one. He is indeed, effectively, uh, uh, fighting for the French uh, title uh, on his own personal mm. uh, behalf. But um, there is an argument that, for instance, uh, the French were the allies of the Scots, the French... Uh, were already involved in a war with England because they uh, tried largely unsuccessfully to send aid to the Scots. Mm. Uh, so to that extent, and equally, um, 
Gascony, although it was in, uh, it was effectively uh, his personal fiefdom, was valued by the English. Uh, not only as a source of wine, but uh, <laughs> it, it was a valuable um, uh, trading partner for English merchants. So the 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 personal ambition crosses over with uh, he wasn't defending his country or he wasn't actually uh, reclaiming something that belonged to England um, but it, it was something there was a crossover between the personal ambition and the uh, uh, wider interest the two things are linked they're, they're yeah. very much linked yeah. uh, I mean for after all uh, a lot of the nobles had claims to lands in Normandy mm. okay uh, and they, that you're only talking uh, sort of three, four generations back. They they were great Norman lords, and they yeah. hadn't forgotten it. Talking, I suppose, about the actual um, attack on France, um, I was interested in uh, what that battle might have been like um, in terms of the uh, the battlefield and the techniques that Edward used. When you say the battlefield, you mean the Battle of Cressy? Yes. Yes, particularly. Mm. Um, Cressy is very interesting, and um, it, it's uh, probably too long to do in more than, uh, in less than about a quarter of an hour, so I'll be brief. <laughs> but the important thing about Cressy, without going into too much detail, is that Edward actually uh, clearly, uh, at least in my view, was using... Uh, tactics and weapons which had never been seen on a battlefield before mm. uh, and in, in brief uh, new evidence has come to light uh, which indicates that Edward was actually fighting from inside a ring of carts he was using uh, archers which in terms of continental warfare were completely new and he was using guns which were completely new mm. and he constructed uh, this ring of carts in open country because there was nowhere which was suitable for the technique that the English had used of getting a defensive de position mm. with a narrow covering uh, approach which the archers could cover. So he created it on the battlefield. Um, I mean, this is... Uh, doubtless going to be argued about, but at least I put it on the table for other people to knock it no, down. No, it's fascinating, yes. Yeah. Um, obviously, there's so much here we could talk about. Um, what led to him being able to use all these innovations at the same time? Um, I think the, the answer is guns were coming to the fore anyway, and he was interested in new technology. I mean, he... Uh, had one of the first clocks, uh, public clocks in England at Windsor. I, he, he liked new technology, new things. Uh, and, he, you know, just to think, him as a, think of him as a traditional chivalric king, uh, there's a small element of that, but there are a lot of other things. Mm. Um, the uh, archers uh, were an innovation in terms of continental warfare, but it was something that the English had particularly developed. And uh, the other thing is that Edward was very good at improvising mm. uh, and the Ring of Cards was an improvisation in response to a situation using something which was known about. You can actually trace this uh, um, back uh, right into um, barbarian attacks on the Romans uh, in the 8th century. Uh, this Ring of Cards mm -hmm. idea is, um, uh, is recorded. 
but chaining them together in this way so that you couldn't break into the ring and this this sort of thing and he, uh, the way he play, used them to uh, place the archers and so on yeah. he's uh, he's somebody who can think and improvise and uh, yeah. uh, you know it may have been one of his knights who suggested it but he was open to that kind of suggestion that's a good point yeah, yeah. fantastic thank you um, and how pivotal a moment um, was this particular battle in one sense very pivotal um in terms of its long-term uh, consequences, not actually, because the point was that Edward was an extremely effective uh, in the field. The English armies were very effective, but what they never worked out how to do was to actually hold the country. I mean, this is a classic um, problem that you get, um, that... Um, it's one thing to conquer a country, it's another thing to hold it down. Mm. And in the medieval period, it was exceedingly difficult to do that, yeah. particularly if the uh, population was somewhat hostile. And of course, by the 14th century, uh, your average English soldier uh, had absolutely no idea about French. Uh, he might have perhaps in the 12th or 13th, but it wouldn't have been very good French. But basically, they were fighting in a country they didn't understand so discipline and so on and the interaction with the population were pretty poor and also the English idea of economic warfare uh, was uh, absolutely against their sort of uh, Edward's pronouncement that the population went to be harmed okay um, you know he's trying to do two things at once mm. the strategy for um, making a big military impression on the country is absolutely splendid, but having done your great raid across to uh, Calais or your great raid into southwest France, um, you went away and just left a lot of very um, people who were not going to, uh, so to speak, vote for you when it came to choosing the, uh, who was going to be the next king. Moving on, I suppose, to the company legata, which is the other um, theme of the book, one of the other themes. Yeah. Um, what do we know about its earliest days? Very little. This is a real problem, because what happened seems to have happened is that uh, the records were kept by the company of legata. It was based in St. George's Chapel. There were also canons in St. George's Chapel, a college of canons. And it seems, as far as we can tell, that the records were kept in the college. And as early as 1377, um, there was a visitation, in other words, an inspection of the college by uh, the uh, uh, bishop responsible for it. And one of the things that is noted is that the records are in complete disorder. Mm. Um, and uh, so we don't actually have any records for... Uh, official records for the very early period and the earliest actual mention is in a chronicle about uh, five or six years later okay. which people have slightly dismissed because it doesn't correspond with the reconstructed records from 1415 mm. and so on uh, and um, I actually think it's probably a better source than the uh, actual garter statutes themselves, which have been scraped together from what people could remember. Mm, okay, yeah. So we really know very little about it. We all, all we've got, really, are the statutes, 
which we can sort of detect what the original purpose was. Mm. Um, and records in the royal accounts of the issue of robes for the annual feast and things like that. Um, and that's all we can sort of go on. And there are sometimes names attached to the issue of robes. So okay. that's that's one check. But um, we honestly don't know very much. No. Okay. Um, this episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. I mean, there's two, there's two other things there, which is, uh, firstly, what were its aims in being set up? Ah, well, there you do have some knowledge, mm-hmm. because uh, what, um, I mean, this is, this is uh, rather sweeping, but nobody ever seems to have actually read the statute before <laughs> writing about it. Mm. Because if you read the statutes, there is one military clause. There is something that says you've got to be, um, you know, a respectable uh, knight, but it's very vaguely phrased. And you, you know, it's rather like saying you've got to be a gentleman to be admitted to the club. Uh, it's as vague as that. Mm. Uh, there's nothing which says, uh, you know, you will hold a tournament every year on St. George's Day. They didn't. I mean, there is one at the very beginning. There's one which happens to coincide with St. George's Day, and that's all the evidence there is for regular tournaments. So it's not a chivalric order of knighthood. What the statutes are about is how many masses you have said for somebody who's died, uh, a great sort of table of uh, 
how many masses an earl uh, has to pay for, how many masses a knight has to pay for, for a deceased companion. So it is absolutely straight religious confraternity. It's like a guild of knights. Okay. Um, and the other thing, um, we'll come back to religion in a minute. The other thing yeah. is, you mentioned robes. Um, one thing that's interesting is beyond all the religious and the military thing is how the company affected uh, kind of fashion, I suppose, and architecture and music. Um, do we get a sense of that? This is um, really to do with the company's role as uh, part of a sort of royal um, display at Windsor. I mean, <coughs> to some extent, Edward is copying the French. And because the French had an order like this, or uh, projected, but never really got it off the ground, they also had a royal chapel, and there were certain things about the French royal chapels. And Edward is imitating these French royal chapels, which also had colleges of canons attached, this sort of thing. And uh, they also had very fine music and architecture. Um, it, the company itself is part of that whole... Um, kind of set up it says it doesn't actually determine it i understand no, yeah. that's cool um so can you talk me through the uh, role and the character of some of the original members of the company of the garter right um these are the tight group around edward i'm the major players uh who he's known for uh by this time he's known and fought with them for 20 years some mm -hmm. of them uh, and it's also a number of younger knights who seem to be associated with the Black Prince, who, of course, was uh, at the time uh, only six, uh, 18 when the Garter was founded. He, he was 16 when he fought at Cressy. Wow. Um, and um, so basically it's the king and his companions, but they are very interesting. In a funny way, the key companion is missing, and that's William Montague, the Earl of Salisbury, who, after Henry Beaumont, was Edward's great mentor. Uh, he seems to have been his closest friend. Uh, but he was not personally ambitious, and that was a huge, okay. huge help to Edward, because although he was Edward's, if you like, favourite in uh, inverted commas, knight, he was not Edward's favourite. Uh, in, in the usual sense of royal favourites. Mm. Uh, but he was a very important mentor. He it was, seems to have been the ringleader of the coup in 1330. Uh, what he seems to have taught Edward is the effectiveness of joint uh, sudden uh, action and how you could work together. And you see this in the tournaments, the way they fight together, mm. the way they f Edward fights under uh, the other members of the uh, uh, of a tournament uh, fights under one of the other members of this small circle. So the impact of somebody like Montague is actually very important. He unfortunately died before the order was founded, and his son, a companion of the Black Prince, was uh, um, made a Knight of the Garter instead. The uh, in a way, the individuals are important. They're all, uh, well, not all, the the, one, the ones who the king chose are talented commanders, um, and they're also his constant companions in the 
tournaments, and the two are almost synonymous, practically. Mm-hmm. Um, no one individual really stands out. I mean, somebody like Thomas Beecham uh, would stand out anyway because he's um, uh, the oldest of the new group of earls who Edward brings in. Okay. And somebody like Henry of Grossmont, who was uh, Edward's cousin and um, a very important figure in Edward's life. Uh, but they they are important as individuals, but that it's really as a group that they're really important. Sure. Oh, uh, cool. a, a group of like-minded individuals. Mm. Okay. Um, you mentioned uh, Edward's cousin there. Um, how important was family um, in strengthening this group of men? Uh, it was very important because uh, certainly even in the early stages, quite a lot of the people are related to Edward. Mm. Uh, also, quite interestingly, there are quite strong cross-links between the other individuals who aren't necessarily related to Edward, but a lot of them are related to each other, intermarried, okay. this kind of thing. So it, it, relationships are important. Um, being a member of the royal family was one of the sort of qualifications for being a knight of the garter. Towards the end of Edward's reign, uh, his sons all came in and uh, various relations by marriage come in until it is preponderantly the royal family. But it didn't start necessarily that it way? It didn't start no. that way. No. Okay. Um, you also mentioned tournaments there. Um, which kind of run through some of the book. Um, how important were they as a social or a political tool? I think because of Edward's own interests, um, they were extremely important. Um, at one level, they were a bit like playing golf today, where you met people socially at that sort of level and talked to you know, the, uh, the, uh, the sort of uh, traditional view of a golf club, if you like. But... They had other real advantages um, because they did teach people to fight as a team. They taught people to work as a team. And what you're getting at this point is a change from the big uh, rough-and-tumble tournament, uh, the melee and the very large numbers on each side, uh, which was another kind of mock warfare, uh, to the much smaller team groups. Uh, who fought much more one-to-one. And the melee tournament, which was a general tournament, uh, did continue to happen, but wasn't necessarily the most important thing. So you're getting people who are learning to work and fight together. That's one important element. And the other is the friendships and the uh, um, relationships formed. They are also quite interesting in that there is a period when Edward doesn't hold parliaments, and he goes on a great sort of tournament tour, uh, and there's a slight feeling, uh, as um, Mark Ormerod suggested to me, that he might actually have been using them to sound out political opinion. Okay. Which is interesting, mm-hmm. because obviously if you've got a lot of um, the knights gathered together, uh, it was a good way of finding out what they were talking about, and uh, I think Edward did listen. On a similar note, I suppose... Do we get a sense of how interested Edward really was in the idea of, of King Arthur? Uh, this, is, this is an interesting one because he's always quoted as being terribly interested in King Arthur. The actual evidence is that uh, everyone assumes that he was interested in 
Arthur, as in the Arthurian romances. Mm. Well, in the Middle Ages, there are two Arthurs. Uh, there's the Arthur of history, and he was very much a historical figure. And there's the Arthur of literature. Now, Edward was interested in the Arthur of history as a predecessor, uh, as a model for the uh, uh, empire he hoped to rule. Uh, he picked up the round table idea uh, as a way of, I think, of getting knights together uh, who could then be relied on uh, to provide uh, troops for the next campaign because he tried buying troops in, so to speak, from uh, Flanders and so on and had ruined himself in the process. So when the Cressic campaign when the Cressy campaign was mounted, um, he literally did it out of his own resources. Uh, and in a sense, also, he did it so successfully. The round table had been held in 1344. He never actually got round to properly founding the order. Uh, he said, I'm going to found it. Mm. Uh, also, interestingly, provided I have enough money. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> there's, a, there's, a we, there's some weasel work in his, uh, his, his oath, which actually boiled down to that. <laughs> um, and having succeeded in, at Cressy on his own resources and without the round table in place, uh, I think he thought, uh, I, 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 can, I can do better mm. than this. Okay, fantastic. Yeah. So how much can we find out about the later experiences of company members? Um, well, the key, the two key battles, obviously, are Poitiers, Poitiers and Nájera in Spain. Uh, Poitiers uh, is largely fought by commanders who, uh, A, had been at Cressy, and B, were uh, companions of the order. Mm. Uh, so, in some ways, the, that's where you really see the company of the Garter, uh, as a social organization um, and a social organization which means that the commanders com communicate with each other and understand what people are doing. I mean, at one point I was, um, I, I was puzzled by Jonathan Sumption's query as to why the English fought together so successfully at Poitiers. And my answer is because uh, they were like people on a modern uh, SAS mission, where you really have very little communication. And what they had was a mission goal, which they knew what the object was. They had a broad plan of action. And... Uh, the Black Prince trusted them to carry it out. It may well be the famous manoeuvre uh, by the Capital Buch, who was one of the Knights of the Garter, where he took a small force of about 50 knights and rode clean round the back of the French army and attacked them from the rear, um, which uh, in fact was very foolhardy, but it caused such panic that it was... Uh, uh, a very strong factor in the final victory mm. and that might well have been his own initiative so we could just touch on Philip I suppose how key a figure was she in Edward's reign um, I think what where Philippa comes in is that uh, she provided an immensely sort of stable background uh, she was I think she was clever mm. uh, I think um, she uh, you know the, the books that 
as she presented Edward with, uh, indicate somebody who has, uh, knew something about books and learning. Um, I don't think they were simply sort of you know, formal presentations because um, they, they do form quite an interesting group. Um, and I, I think she was also uh, a, a wonderful sort of second of, um, or if not leader, of uh, the uh, amazing expenditure on display and clothing. I mean, okay. she got into trouble very early on in the rain for total overspend, but uh, Edward realized uh, that uh, this kind of splendor uh, was very important. I mean, there's a wonderful line in uh, uh, Thomas Hardy, he who seems most kingly is the king. And that was how it worked. Yeah. Uh, and again, Roy Strong's book on Splendor at Court, which shows how it was used later. Okay. A lot of that uh, Renaissance splendor is already there in Edward's reign. Philip is at the center of it. Of course, she comes from Flanders, where the really expensive materials were made, mm. uh, and she would know about these kind of things. And indeed, her in the early accounts, there are quite a lot of references to things being made in England in the Hainault fashion. Okay. And the chroniclers uh, blame the Hainaulters for all these immoral costumes that are appearing and uh, and this is in the 13 late 1340s and they say they were brought over by the Hainalters 20 years ago and that's where all the trouble started <laughs> <laughs> oh. so um, yes she I, I think she is quite an important mm. figure um, and uh, uh, and the, uh, and Edward obviously listened to her I mean how true the whole story of the um, uh, the burghers of Calais and her asking for them uh, for mercy for them uh, is I think in well in Froissart's full version I think it's a, it's as much a novel as a, um, a fact but I think she did get um, get them pardoned and I think uh, uh, she was uh, she was an influence in many ways so we move on now I suppose to um, when things started to go less successfully um, for Edward yeah um to what extent, I mean, what are the causes, do you think, of this, um, this downturn, I suppose? Well, I think uh, Edward's political strategy was quite limited. And I think the limitations on it were uh, that he didn't understand, and very few people in his situation have understood and managed to execute, uh, a program for bringing the natives over, so to speak. He did understand one thing, which was that um, the French kings were paranoid about treachery, and they were prone to um, losing their tempers and executing people on something which looked like a sort of arbitrary whim, because they knew something which couldn't be explained to the rest of the world, uh, and somebody might be executed overnight with no warning and no trial. And this did happen in Philip, uh, in both Philip and John's reign. There were executions with very little uh, legal procedure. 
Now, Edward seems to have realized that this was not a good idea. Uh, and also, the, I, the question of allegiance worked quite well, but he never managed to hold the people who came over to the, uh, the English side. Okay. Or he got the ones who actually were pretty devious anyway, like Robert of Artois, um, and uh, were more of a nuisance than they were worth. <laughs> so he, he ended up with an English invasion, successful invasion of France, but no French base, mm, okay. no French clientele, and he never managed to build it up. And so the political strategy was flawed, only that he, in that he hadn't been able to solve something which very few people have okay. been able to yeah. um, uh, solve, which is how to conquer a country which is basically root and branch, uh, hostile. And which also is hostile because um, they don't particularly like the idea of, uh, irrespective of nationality, of somebody who is going to um, rule them mm. when they're used to being uh, ruled with a pretty light reign. Yeah. Do you think it's it's right that Edward is regarded generally as one of the best medieval kings? Do you think that's a fair assessment? Uh, certainly one of the most successful. Mm. Okay. I think that's probably the, uh, <laughs> you know, what is best. But, mm. uh, he, he's very successful at what he does. Uh, and the, this is it. But what happens is that uh, the successes of the early years then fade away. There are French defeats. Uh, they're defeated by the French uh, and uh, by the Castilian fleet at, at La Rochelle. And uh, things are not going well by the end of his reign. Mm. Uh, and in a sense, uh, Richard II was a, a disappointment for two reasons. One, that uh, you know he couldn't produce these spectacular victories because uh, the French had changed tactics uh, and uh, were successfully resisting uh, any kind of English incursion. They, they'd worked out what to do, mm. which was to fight a defensive war, because every time they'd attacked... Uh, they'd been uh, uh, taken to pieces and they forgot that at Agincourt and were taken to pieces again. Mm. I mean, uh, any commander who attacked a defensive army uh, without very good reason uh, and knowing that the defensive army was almost in disarray uh, was uh, was asking for it. Mm. I mean, <laughs> rule one, don't <laughs> attack. <laughs> but the trouble was, again, with the French, they were so keen on sort of honour and glory and so on that mm. uh, uh, when Philip, the, uh, uh, Philip of Valois did the right thing and retreated, uh, everybody mocked him for it. Mm. And actually, he'd done exactly the right thing. Yeah. Um, now, Richard II was a disappointment simply because he couldn't deliver that kind of thing. Uh, now, if that had been the only thing, uh, you know, it, 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 it wouldn't really have been either here or not there, but he had a, a totally different attitude to kingship, which was that he was king, and uh, that, that was that. Uh, everybody else had to jump too. Uh, he had favourites, but they were of his own age and not terribly successful. And he fell out in a big way with his, uh, with the great magnates. Okay. Um, and uh, uh, it's entirely really down to a failure to um, create the kind of social bonds that Edward III did because he temperamentally wasn't suited to it. 
the Black Prince equally was not suited to it and had great trouble in Gascony because uh, uh, he was trying to impose things on them the whole time. Mm. It's interesting that personality can have such a big impact on yeah. a whole kind of reign uh, and a whole period. Well, I, I, I'm a great believer in the fact that, uh, you know, your, your social history or uh, the kind of uh, history that the French wrote in the uh, 19, well, 1960s, even 1970s and 1980s uh, about communities and so on is only part of the story and a single individual can make an awful lot of difference mm. to history. Um, uh, all right, you can say, well, it wouldn't have happened if it hadn't been for the social circumstances, but one person's decision can be massively mm. important. You write a lot in the book about sources. Um, what challenges presented um, in researching this particular period of history? This is what I tried to show by starting the book with, by looking, uh, you know, not just at the political background, but as you say, why, how do we know what we know? Uh, that was the question that the first section uh, was designed to do, because I don't think anybody's quite set it out in this way before, but it is absolutely basic to our understanding of medieval history. Um, because historically, uh, you know, practically everybody's heard of Frassar if they've been interested in this period. And for many, many, well, for centuries, Frassar was regarded as um, the authority uh, and totally, uh, you know, almost totally taken on trust. And this is absolutely not the case. So having started by uh, saying, well, let's... I tried actually to discount and not use Frassar unless he was supported by something else. And having done that, I then had to work out for myself uh, what was useful and what wasn't. Yeah. And um, the sources that were particularly useful were almost invariably chronicles written within 10 years of the event. Okay. Preferably chronicles which had been um, written by people with contacts in the right places. And in fact, the, you know, in the early part, the most useful one was uh, uh, Jean Lebel's Chronicle, because not only had he actually fought with Edward as a knight uh, in the Scottish campaigns, uh, he then became a churchman, um, particularly um, a grand and very secular churchman with 30 squires attending him when he went to Mass on Sunday and uh, great feasts at his house uh, so that he rather outshone his bishop. <laughs> um, now, Lebel was talking to the right people. He'd been on a battlefield, this kind of thing. Mm. Uh, that's very useful. Equally, you get some very intelligent uh, chroniclers who are really thinking at this point what they're doing. They're not just writing down what they hear. There's a wonderful... Um, uh, author from much the same part of the world as Frassard and Jean Lebel, the Low Countries, uh, and uh, uh, he's called Gilles, Gilles Le Muisi, and um, he was abbot of Tournay, and um, he was very well placed to hear both the French and English side. Tournay was basically pro-French, but there were a lot of contacts with England, and he writes a wonderful passage. 
about how when you're in the middle of a battle, you really don't have a clue what's going on and nobody can actually tell you what happened in any given battle. Uh, it is uh, the difficulty of knowing what's going on. And it's fascinating because it's something that's taken up in this century by John Keegan in his really superb book, The Face of Battle, which says very much the same sort of thing. And um, that is um, uh, hugely useful. Somebody who really is trying within 10 years of events to assess what happened. Mm. And sometimes, I mean, Winchelsea, um, in fact, indeed, Cressy, uh, the Musee actually says, well, was it really an English victory? I mean, uh, the English held the field, but uh, in fact, he was wrong on that one. It was an English victory. But the Battle of Winchelsea, uh, the battle at sea against the Castilian fleet in 1350, he's very doubtful that it was an English victory. Mm because uh, he said the, a large part of the Castilians got away and the English may still have, so to speak, held the place of battle, but the Castilians didn't want to stay there and the English actually were in no state to no. go anywhere else. <laughs> so, no. um, uh, you know, he, he, that kind of splendidly sceptical view is wonderful. Mm. The other sources which were incredibly useful and very interesting, but very difficult to... Uh, if you like, write history from uh, the uh, royal accounts, which are incredibly detailed and uh, uh, very, very interesting in what they uh, tell you about, particularly about relationships between the king and his knight, and things like the fact that there are far more tournaments than we knew about, and some of these tournaments, uh, Edward is again fighting under somebody else because all the armour has the arms of the participants, two other participants, for instance, in one tournament, two other participants, their arms are on everything, okay. which implies that Edward was playing a, a, an anonymous, you know, uh, a subordinate role. Mm. Um, so th those are the things I'd really point at. Mm. Um, and, uh, and again, uh, they're more difficult to use. The letters which... Um, uh, the commanders uh, of the army and Edward and the Black Prince wrote home. The problem with those is they'll tell you where they went and what they did, but not uh, when you go to a battle how they did it. Okay. Yeah. Um, were there any other particular challenges in writing this book? The biggest problem was that it was sort of going in three directions at once, if not more, and it was very difficult to keep the material under control because you ended up. Uh, writing the whole history of Edward's reign, if you weren't careful. Yeah. careful. Uh, and yet you really wanted to focus in as much, you, uh, as, much as you could um, and uh, hone, in, hone, hone in on certain things. Uh, but then you've got to link them to the next thing that was coming, which possibly wasn't at all related. Yeah. So it was really the biggest challenge. in uh, The researching was simply... Uh, the problem was a vast amount of material and also a lot of uh, wild goose chases after something that looked as though it was interesting and <laughs> then turned out not to be. No. Uh, the challenge in writing it was to hold the material together. And I I think it works, but it was uh, uh, it, it is quite a, 
Uh, it's not just uh, start in 1326 and end in 1377 like a history of the reign. Yeah. It, it, it's much more looking at topics and themes, and that's quite hard to keep together and avoid repetition. I took a lot of repetitions out, but I'm sure there are still some still left. I mean, how long has it taken you? All in, if you had to Probably estimate. Probably about seven years. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Not full time, but no, uh, no. Uh, yes. Okay. And, yeah. and what was the thing that most surprised you? from your research? I think the most surprising thing was that in 1328 there's a record of Edward having costumes made, 12 costumes for the for what he calls the, or what the accounts call the Game of Craddock. Now Craddock's a character in us here in Romance who produces a mantle at court and persuades King Arthur to let to make the ladies try it on. And according to how faithful they were, the mantle either uh, covered them completely or shrank, uh, and um, one or two ladies were completely naked by the end of it. Uh, now, obviously, this is a kind of chastity test, uh, uh, you know, and what Craddock is actually challenging is the reputation of Arthur's court. In the circumstances, Isabella and Mortimer were having a spectacular affair. What was Edward doing playing this game? Mm. I mean, it either says uh, it was, uh, it must have related to that affair. I can't say that it couldn't have done. Now, I, either, I, I can't read it other than some kind of, uh, uh, I mean, Edward was, was um, uh, he was, uh, 16, he was sort of 17, 18 at the time. And, um, uh, whether it was a sort of teenage prank or whether it really said, uh, was saying to Isabella, uh, you know, I'm the king, I know what you're up to and uh, I don't like it. Mm. Uh, in a not particularly roundabout <laughs> way. Uh, but that, that, that's the thing that I, I, I was most surprised by. The other thing actually which was quite interesting was um, uh, that... Uh, there was another example of something that's very rare and which I didn't know of, even though I'd worked on tournaments a lot, a, a tournament at night in 1329, uh, which again is a, is a good story, and that the king had a special costume uh, uh, which involved a lot of gold thread made for it, okay. uh, which to me rather implies that it was meant to be dramatic and mm. he'd ride into the torchlight in this gold costume which would uh, reflect the yeah. torches um, so th there are wonderful little details I don't think that I suppose actually the other thing that was a surprise was the fact uh, yes there was one very big surprise and that was that the uh, order of the Garter was not an order of chivalry but a religious confraternity mm -hmm. because this hadn't even been suggested uh, and yet uh Everybody just assumed it was an order of chivalry because that was what it became. And yet, uh, in my view, the evidence that there is is pretty much straightforward that it was not. So, um, unless you redefine orders of chivalry, I think that was the biggest mm. surprise. Do you, do you think that this book will, or do you hope this book will, change our understanding of, of Edward, of the themes that you explore? Um, I hope this book will... Uh, I wouldn't claim to uh, make everybody 
change their understanding. But what I w hope they would do is that I hope they'd at least go away and look at it all again mm. and uh, show me where I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> that was Richard Barber. Richard's new book, Edward III and the Triumph of England, is out now, published by Alan Lane. And Matt's interview with Richard formed the basis of an article in our September issue, which is out now. Also in the September edition, we've got articles about Waterloo, medieval letter writing, the Civil War, vampire attacks and the Battle of Flodden. And if you happen to have an iPad, you'll be able to enjoy an interactive version of the Flodden article, featuring a series of maps of the battle and video and audio commentary from historian George Goodwin. You can find the BBC History magazine iPad app at the newsstand. And that's almost all for this week. Do get in touch with your views on podcast at historyextra.com and we might well read out some of your messages in future episodes. And you can follow us on Twitter at History Extra. We're also on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash History Extra. Plus, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, for all the latest history news, blogs, image galleries, quizzes and more. You'll also get the chance to have your say on some of the hottest historical topics at the moment. In next week's podcast, we'll be on the road with Mark Stoyle, visiting an important location from the Civil War. Do come along with us for that. The History Extra weekly podcast is recorded in Bristol and produced by Jack Fletcher. 